This episode of Strange New Worlds is dedicated to the memory of Charlie Dajose. Welcome back, explorers. Mike Wong here, your host. One of the most incredible things that I did this summer was journey to Las Vegas for the annual Star Trek convention. Now, Strange New Worlds being such a young podcast, this was the first Star Trek convention at which other people actually recognized me because of this podcast. It was actually pretty startling to run into complete strangers and have them say to me, I listen to your podcast. I know who you are. I know everything about you. That got me wondering, but do you know everything about me? I mean, I am usually the question asker on this podcast. I'm almost never put on the spot. Until now. Joining us today on Strange New Worlds is science writer Lori Dajose. As a journalist, Lori's primary role in Caltech's Office of Strategic Communications is to interview scientists and write about their research and discoveries in a way that is both exciting and understandable to the public. Knowing that she loves interviewing scientists, I decided to ask Lori, would you interview me? for my podcast. And so, Lori and I sat down outside the Red Door Cafe on Caltech's campus during my visit for the 2019 Sagan Workshop over the summer. And she began to probe my mind. So. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, well, are we... Do you want to start? If you like. Okay. Shoot great. me the first question. Yeah. I am yeah. ready for this. Okay. So, Mike, you're here at Caltech again. I can't back. leave. I'm yeah. always, it's like a gravitational well. <laughs> I slingshot out, but then I'm, I drift back towards Caltech. I'm like on an eccentric orbit yeah. or something like well, that. Well, that's nice for those of us like me who have also been trapped in Caltech's gravitational well that you come back and visit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you're back here for this astrobiology workshop and I guess that just is a good launching point to ask you what is astrobiology? So astrobiology is the study of the origins, distribution, and fate of life in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I am really passionate about astrobiology because those are the types of questions that keep me up at night and make me want to go into work and sit down at my desk and sort of just you know, lock myself in a room and think and really force my brain to do work and, and to actually sit at a computer and code, which I honestly don't enjoy very much. But when I know that I'm doing it for the greater good of trying to reach these answers out there about are we alone and where did we come from, it's super motivating. So astrobiology is almost anybody, I think, could be an astrobiologist. You can always approach it from whatever vector you want. So um, for myself, I am approaching astrobiology from the planetary science perspective. Like, where does life fit into a planetary context? What kinds of planetary processes allow for life to exist and to emerge in the first place? And then how does life feed back onto the planet and make an observable signal that we can then go and detect, be it on Mars or on a distant exoplanet? 
you know, that launches right into the most existential question of what is life and how do you define it in a scientific way? That's a really good question. And there is no good definition of life. NASA's working definition of life is a chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. I'm not 100% satisfied with this definition, but it hits some key points. The first part of the definition is that life needs to be a chemical system, but nearly everything that we deal with in the physical world is a chemical system because everything is made up of chemicals. And then something that is capable of Darwinian evolution just means that it needs to be able to replicate itself and there need to be natural errors, natural mutations that the world then selects upon for certain mutations to be beneficial or for certain mutations to be not beneficial to that life and then you sort of evolve or learn about your environment through this process of creating more of yourself with a bunch of varieties and some of you survive better than others. Essentially what Darwinian evolution is in a nutshell. But I, I think that this is like missing some very important parts of life. Yeah, like uh, what? So I think that a, a very key aspect of life is its inherent complexity and the fact that it always requires some source of energy, some sort of, we call it free energy uh, as a technical term in the scientific domain. But essentially life needs to breathe and to eat. So right now I'm, I'm drinking some coffee. We drink coffee because it has caffeine and that's like a stimulant or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But also in this coffee is a bunch of sugar um, because coffee is really bitter to me. So, you know, I have, I have to put sugar in my coffee um, or, or milk or something like that. And that's chemical energy. That's fuel. The technical term for that is a reductant or something that basically has a lot of electrons that it wants to give away. And then at the same time, we breathe. We have to constantly breathe in this air. And the air has, as everybody knows, oxygen. And that's basically the dump or the sink for all these electrons. And our body is constantly utilizing this electron transfer between the food that we eat and the oxygen that we breathe. And that powers life. Life is literally electrical. It's, it's not really a metaphor. It, we are powered by the transfer of electrons in all of our cells. And the particular part of the cell that does this is the mitochondrion, which I'm told I must say is the powerhouse of the cell. I don't know, what, is that a meme or something that it's, I'm just too old to I think, appreciate? I mean, like, I think it's when people think back on what they learned from high school or middle school biology. It's just that phrase, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And I don't know, I guess it is a meme in, in that, like... Anybody would okay, <laughs> remember okay. that. Maybe. Because I was teaching my astrobiology class um, the first time around, so this would be winter 2017, mm -hmm. and I got to the part where I talked about the energetics of life and the sources for our energy, and ultimately everything is this chemical reaction, this transfer of electrons, and I told them that the mitochondria does this, and there's like crickets in, in the audience. They were just like all waiting for me to say this phrase. And then after the class, they were like, how did you stop at just mitochondria? How did you not say that it's the powerhouse of this? I'm like, well, I'm supposed to say that? I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's a thing. Uh, <laughs> it's a thing, okay. So I, I feel like maybe this is a bit of a tangent, um, but mitochondria actually were bacteria before, right? Yeah. That became engulfed by cells. like. So much of life seems to rely on other forms of life. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that that is one of the mind-blowing things about thinking about life on a very deep level. It's that there's really no such thing as 
an isolated organism. We all rely on each other in so many different and intimate ways. One, one thing that we rely on is the fact that our distant ancestors engulfed bacteria and basically made them into my, what they are today, mitochondria. Um, but beyond that, not only do our individual cells in our bodies have engulfed ancient cells in them, but we, our human organs, we contain all of these endosymbionts inside of us that are doing metabolic activities that we would not be able to do without them. So like our microbiomes. Exactly, yeah, yeah, the microbiome. And so all animal life forms basically have a microbiome, and we're constantly trading our microbiomes when we touch other things in the world. And so the general term for this is uh, symbiosis. Life exists in a state of symbiosis, and, and there's different levels to this, again, intracellular inside cells uh, inside multicellular organisms but then also just existing in spatial relationship to one another like there are mats of bacteria you know out there growing and the top layers like a photosynthetic bacterium and then the lower layer is also photosynthetic but uses sunlight that was missed essentially by the top layer and then the bottom layer it might be some chemotrophic organism something that is not using sunlight at all just the local chemical gradients and they all interact in that the waste product of one is like the food for the other and Mm -hmm. I think that's really fascinating to think about. So how has studying astrobiology and being steeped in this idea of, you know, what life is, what life does, how life interacts with other life and with the planet around it, how does that influence you as a person, as a human being? That's a really great question, and I wasn't anticipating it. Well, to start out, I would say that just knowing that we are all so interconnected, not just by the present interconnectedness and the relationships that we have to the fact that there are plants doing photosynthesis that eventually end up feeding us in our lifetimes, but that we are interconnected through deep time as well. That as far as we know, there was one last universal common ancestor and perhaps just one origin of life on Earth, from which the entire tree of life has proliferated and branched out from. And that means that not only are you know we all related as human beings, but we share genetic material with the plants and the trees that we're surrounded by with those flowers. We share genetic material with the fruit fly that was you know harassing you the other day. Uh, we, we share genetic material with all of the microscopic organisms that we can't see without the help of tools of, of, of microscopes, and and so. That, to me, is really profound, and it makes me appreciate the fact that we are part of this grand, evolving story of life in concert with everything else. And uh, we should never forget how interrelated we are, because we're all part of that same story. You know, it's, there's, there's very little that actually separates all of life on Earth. We all use the same genetic material, the same types of proteins, the same building blocks, and we all operate because of electricity, because of this electron transfer. We all do the same thing, and we're all just trying to do it the best that we can in this world. Just trying to shuttle electrons as best as I can. (laughs) So with that in mind, you're talking about life on Earth and this idea of interconnectedness. 
So say that your work is successful and you know you and your colleagues find signatures of life on some other world in the universe how does that change things what would your reaction be and how how would it change life as we know it that's a great question on a scientific level it would just be intellectually satisfying to know what is the occurrence rate of life in the universe is life this phenomenon that naturally occurs for instance, when planets form, they tend to form cores of iron and differentiate into, you know, a core of iron, a, a rocky silicate mantle, and then you've got your outer parts of the planet with a hydrosphere and an atmosphere. And that's just because of gravity and the different incompatibilities between how elements interact with each other. So most planets have this kind of onion-like structure. And one big question is, is the biosphere just yet another level to this differentiation? That's just an intellectual question that I'd love to know the answer to. But I think on a societal level, it's, um, it's perhaps even more profound that if we found evidence of extraterrestrial life, I think that we would start to see ourselves and our relationship to all life on Earth very differently. And this is sometimes called like the, the overview effect or the planetary perspective that when astronauts go up into outer space and they see the world and they look down on it, they don't see the lines that we have drawn on globes here on Earth, you know, the lines that differentiate between countries. They just see the natural geologic features. And you can really feel on a visceral level the unity of our little spaceship, our little mote of dust as Carl Sagan, right? Carl Sagan mm, said. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, th that we are really just a very tiny speck in this, in this cosmos and we're all hanging in here together and that we need to take care of our planet. Well, say we found life on some other world, uh, I think we would begin to really realize the connections between all of us, this one tree of life, and there might be other trees of life out there. And I think I, think I wrote something about might have been like a poem or some slam poetry type of thing, but it was like, I think we would all, I think we would all come to realize and appreciate the fact that we have, that we share certain commonalities, like that we all have five fingers on our hands, because the aliens that we might find out there only have four. Right now, we don't feel any connection to one another because we share this trait of we all have five fingers on, on each hand. But... If we found something that was distinct from ourselves, then all of a sudden the connection that we never noticed before will become very salient. Uh, and of course, we're probably not going to find aliens that look like humans, uh, except for the fact that they have four fingers instead of five. But we might find alien life out there that uses a different genetic language from us or different amino acids in their proteins. Um, and that's sort of like the analogy between, oh, they have four fingers and they're five. Oh, maybe they use this other chemical compound where we use the amino acid tryptophan or something like that. Where do you think is most likely that we would find life in the universe? The question of, is there life beyond Earth is almost certainly yes, and that may be startling to some people, but the fact of the matter is, we have been trading rocky material with our neighboring planets for a very long time, ever since the formation of the solar system. Specifically, Earth and Mars have been trading rocky material for a long time. You, if you knock off a piece of Earth with an impact, or if you knock off a piece of Mars with an impact, and we know Mars is pockmarked with all sorts of impactors, some of those rocky materials will end up on the other planet. 
More recently in history, we have actually purposefully sent things to Mars, like the different rovers and spacecraft that have visited and touched down on that world. And none of those spacecraft are 100% sterile. It's impossible because life finds a way, right? <laughs> I think that's another meme. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's hard to completely scrub every single microbial spore off of an instrument or a device because bacteria can go into this spore mode where they're virtually indestructible. They've ceased their lifelike functions only to reanimate themselves once they are plopped in something that is more suitable for, for life. And so I think it was estimated that the Curiosity rover had thousands of spores on it when it launched. And probably some of those are still on the Curiosity rover at Mars right now. So um, the most likely place that we will find life is when we send something to Mars that will be able to detect life. And we may find evidence of the life that we brought to Mars. And so one of the biggest hurdles in life detection missions is to be able to differentiate between life that we may have accidentally brought to Mars and life that we want to find that originated on Mars in a separate tree of life. Right, so like differentiating between what we've contaminated and what may actually be native. Yes, to. exactly. Do you think that there are areas where we need to take caution? You know, in the history of human exploration, when we've been exploring land and the oceans, it often comes at a cost either to the planet or to people who have either been natively living in places that are being explored or people that get exploited because of this exploration. And exploration seems like this noble pursuit. Okay, now we're onto this final frontier space. And as far as we know, there are no people to... to... Uh, terrorizing yeah, in yeah. space but do you have concerns about this idea of colonialism as we are looking to explore more into space and potentially look for other life forms in space yes i do have concerns although i'm not an expert in in mm -hmm. this particular matter but i've heard talks from people who have thought a lot more in depth about it than than i have and um you're right, there is some problematic aspects with talking about colonizing Mars, for instance, just using the, the word, that term colony, uh, because that invokes a certain part of human history that is probably not the the proudest point, you know, in, in our history. Because like you said, a lot of Western colonization of the other parts of the globe have led to very atrocious acts in, in human history. And so when we go out into outer space, we need to make sure that we use the right language, but really that's just reflective of making sure we have the right mindset about why we are going somewhere. Mm -hmm. Are we going to that place to exploit resources that we eventually want to bring back to Earth? Or are we going out there for perhaps a nobler goal of just trying to understand how all of us together fit into this story of the evolving universe. Um, so when we do that, we can take certain steps to make sure that we are being inclusive, such as uh, when we eventually send people back to the moon or to Mars, make sure that we have uh, a diverse and well-rounded crew of people that includes people of different backgrounds and genders and just diversity in general, that, we, that we're not just sending one demographic out there to explore. Uh, and, you know, in, in a certain way, Star Trek makes 
the mistake of, of calling space the final frontier because that is very like Western expansion, you know. Star Trek was, was described as like wagon train to the stars kind of thing. And, um, you know, back in the 60s that may have flown okay, but uh, it's not exactly the mindset that we want going forward in 2019 or beyond. So, you know, getting on the subject of Star Trek, how did you get interested in in studying planetary science and in studying astrobiology? Because I know you've loved Star Trek since you were a kid and, you know, the show's all about space and people in space. Did that play a role in you choosing your career? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've loved Star Trek since I was a wee child. Um, and it's been such a underlying aspect of my life that absolutely 100% it helped inspire me to go into outer space. One thing that I love about Star Trek is that it's all about people coming together to overcome intellectual and philosophical and ethical challenges in the future in outer space. And that aspect of of optimism really for humanity that we will not only just come together as a human race, but also that we will extend our, our arms out to other life forms that we encounter out there and welcome them as friends. And uh, one last, I mean, there's, there's plenty of, you know, laser shooting and, you know, blowing up of spaceships and action in Star Trek too. But uh, one thing that I do appreciate about Star Trek is that it tries to portray people solving problems intellectually and compassionately as a first attempt rather than just, you know, somebody pulling out a gun and trying to shoot somebody else, which is a lot of science fiction these days. Um, And then, of course, there's the philosophical and societal issues that are tackled in Star Trek. Uh, A lot of stories in Star Trek are like metaphors for certain issues that we face today in real life, and it envisions how we would overcome those challenges in the future. In going into astrobiology, did you have any kind of biology background? You studied planetary science at Berkeley during undergrad, and then... How was that transition into studying the life side of it? Yes, so I was one of those weird planetary science majors. (laughs) Um, I discovered planetary science because I wanted to be an astrobiologist when I was in college. But there aren't many astrobiology programs out there, and Berkeley is one of the many schools that doesn't have a true astrobiology program. So I decided, well, if I can't study aliens, I might as well just study where aliens might live. And so I majored in planetary science and learned all about the different planets in our solar system. Uh, And then I came here to Caltech to get a PhD in planetary science, but all the while knowing that my true passion lies with the questions, are we alone, and how did we get here? And to do that, I needed to take classes outside of the planetary science department. So I took some biology classes um, that... (laughs) I took a lot of classes at Caltech that I didn't need to take, um, just because I have other interests, too. Like, I took a lot of um, humanities classes and such without telling my advisor, because that's always (laughs) dangerous, you know? (laughs) Uh, It's always better to ask for forgiveness than permission right so but uh i I tried to expand my horizons i took some biology classes um i met some astrobiologists at jpl that really helped shape my career in grad school and gave me fun projects to work on and new things to think about and i think that was really a highlight of my caltech experience was the relationship that caltech has to jpl and that jpl has all of these amazing scientists but also amazing missions that are out there getting data 
for the scientists. So now you're a postdoc at University of Washington in Seattle. And what is your current research on? So I'm working on exoplanets, Mm -hmm. so planets that orbit other stars. And I'm working on the chemistry of Venus-like exoplanets around other stars. The reason why Venus-like exoplanets are a hot topic is, <laughs> 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 um, is because a lot of the planets that we are finding these days are probably going to end up looking like Venus in, in, in their nature. Um, Venus, my new advisor, Vicky Meadows, likes to say is the popcorn of the solar system. It's like if Earth were a kernel of corn and then it got too hot, it would pop and it is an irreversible state. You can't put the popcorn back in the kernel. And that's a great metaphor because Venus is literally a hot Earth and it popped, all of its water evaporated and went into space and it's left over with a giant thick CO2 atmosphere. And so if a lot of planets out there end up popping like Venus does, then we may be observing a lot of Venus-like atmospheres rather than Earth-like atmospheres in the near future. But it's very hard to tell what is exactly in the atmosphere of a planet. And so, so far, we don't really know what is in the atmosphere of planets the size of Earth or the size of Venus, which I should remind the listeners are exactly the same size, right? So when we've discovered planets through our different techniques that really just get us the mass and the size of the planets, we cannot differentiate between Earth and Venus. One day, we will finally get a spectrum that tells us a chemical constituent of those atmospheres, and we're looking for oxygen because that's a great sign of life. The thing we need to be careful of is that we need to make sure that Venus-like planets can't make oxygen, too, without life. And I think that they can. So I'm running these models that simulate the the way that chemistry acts on a Venus-like planet around a different type of star. And it's the star's light that drives the chemistry. So different stars will have different intensities of the different colors or frequencies of, of light. And I think you can actually end up driving chemistry on a Venus-like exoplanet that destroys CO2 molecules. And CO2 molecules are one part carbon, two parts oxygen. So if you break apart that carbon, then you've got oxygen floating around the atmosphere. And uh, I think we need to be very careful that we don't mistake a detection of oxygen on an Earth-sized, Earth-mass planet as life. We need to be extra careful that we're not looking at abiotic oxygen on a Venus-like world. Got it. So... When we talk about Earth-like exoplanets, that really could just mean Venus-like exoplanets if the mass and the size are the same. Yes. So we'd be very cautious when you see headlines these days. You know, I, I think even very reputable science news outlets have made critical mistakes. So like National Geographic... Uh, Sometimes the Atlantic can be a little too enthusiastic about some of these discoveries and say Earth-like when really what they mean is Earth mass, Earth size, because we don't actually know what they are like. We just know two parameters out of all of these different contributing factors that make something Earth-like. We just know the mass and the size. But to be Earth-like, you need a certain type of atmosphere, you need water on the surface, And if you think about Earth the way it is today, it is mainly the way it is today because life is here on Earth. And it contributed to the type of atmosphere and to the stability of water and to the nitrogen that is constantly cycling through our planet. And so 
there's a lot of parameters that are baked into the title Earth-like. What you're saying is that if we see headlines that say oxygen found on Earth-like planet, it could just mean abiotic oxygen has been found on a hot Venus-like exoplanet. Yes. Okay. But there have been no headlines that say that yet sure. because nobody has discovered oxygen yet. So, so oxygen is kind of this elusive molecule. You're searching for oxygen on other exoplanets. Yeah, uh, especially on the on the Earth-sized Earth mass planets. Uh, but the crazy thing is we actually haven't discovered any atmospheres on a small terrestrial exoplanet. And the reason why is because those atmospheres are so thin. So you think about this beautiful blue sky that we're sitting under here in Pasadena. And um, if you start driving your car, you know, vertically, you'll get to space in no time at all. Our, our atmosphere is actually really thin. And so to detect such a thin atmosphere from so far away is a really difficult task. And it will take the next generation of telescopes to do that. Telescopes that haven't launched or haven't been built yet. So we only know about atmospheres around big puffy planets like Jupiter or Neptune, things like that. Can oxygen exist on a planet without it being formed by life? Yeah, so breaking apart CO2 with ultraviolet sunlight is one way of doing it, but there's other ways too. Like if you lost a lot of uh, water and then the water breaks apart and um, hydrogen escapes into space, but the oxygen is too heavy to escape mm -hmm. and so it just stays there. That is another way in which you could get oxygen with, without life. Theoretically, of course. So all of these are theoretical because, again, nobody's actually found evidence for oxygen. The amazing thing is that life is able to liberate oxygen from, uh, in the case of Earth, there's so much oxygen lying around, it's just bonded to hydrogen in water. And so life has found a way to use sunlight to break apart hydrogen and oxygen. And then life will use that hydrogen um, to create its organic matter and it spits the oxygen out into, into the atmosphere. Is there something that's particularly special about oxygen in terms of its, you know, electrons or whatever that makes it different from other elements on the periodic table? So oxygen is what we call a very electronegative element. That means that it's super greedy for electrons and that's why it plays such an important role in our bioenergetics and why we need to constantly be breathing in these gulps of oxygen. So if you think of electron transfer as going downhill or like dropping a stone from a high up point to a lower point, and you're basically converting potential energy into kinetic energy. So oxygen is like a super good electron acceptor, meaning it's like very far down, very far below everything else. And so that drop of an electron, that transfer, um, releases so much potential energy and it turns into a lot of kinetic energy. And that's why oxygen is a good thing from an energetic standpoint for life. Cool. That's really interesting. I've, I've never thought, of, thought about it that way. So what is happening in you and me and in everybody who's listening as we breathe? What is that electron transfer process like? That's such a cool question. It's one of the things that completely blew my mind when I found out the answer to all of this. And it may even hint at a certain origin of life story because this is such a central aspect of how life powers itself. So essentially, again, you're transferring an electron from something that 
is electron rich and just wants to donate its electrons to something that is electron poor and greedy for it. So that electron poor thing is oxygen. And in the membranes of our mitochondria, there are different proteins that transfer the electrons and they hop and hop and hop. And they transfer from the organic matter that we've consumed to the oxygen that we breathe. Now, you know that this releases a lot of energy because this exact same thing happens when you burn a piece of wood. That's organic matter, and it's combusting with the oxygen in the air, and it's creating this magnificent fire that is radiant and light and heat. And so we are essentially trying to capture that same energy that would have been given off in terms of light and heat, but in ATP molecules. The way we get there is very interesting. So every time these electrons hop through the proteins in our mitochondria, those proteins pump protons. So protons are hydrogen ions through and across the membrane. So a hydrogen ion has a positive charge. Um, we would symbolize it with H+. And after enough of these electron transfers, we have pumped a bunch of protons to one side of this membrane. The membrane's like a wall that's impermeable to the protons. And so there's an imbalance in protons on one side from the other. So there's an over-concentration of protons on, on one side, thanks to all this pumping. And that creates an imbalance in both charge and concentration. And so all these protons, essentially, if you were a proton, you would feel very strongly that you want to get to, back to that other side of the membrane because there are so many protons around you, you don't like being surrounded by too many protons. And the cell has invented this magnificent microscopic nano engine or machine called ATP synthase. Um, this is another of life's amazing inventions. And this ATP synthase is basically a mechanical device. It literally rotates and you can actually rotate it almost by hand in the lab. Like the biologists that study it can turn this crank. But naturally it, it is turned by the flow of protons or these hydrogen ions that are trying to get back to where they came from before they were pumped to the other side. So they're streaming back through the membrane, through this tunnel called ATP synthase. And as they stream through, they crank the tunnel and it rotates. And that cranking motion turns adenosine diphosphate and a lone phosphate into adenosine triphosphate. And that's ATP. And that's how we make ATP in our bodies. It's this multi-step process. It's almost like a Rube Goldberg machine. I was like, why on earth did we invent this kind of convoluted way to create ATP? And it may have to do with the situation in which the first life forms emerged, where there was not only a source of chemical energy, meaning uh, electrons to be donated, mm -hmm. but there was also a natural imbalance in the amount of protons on one side of a membrane from the other. And in fact, you can find locations on the Earth that have both of these qualities, and they're at hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. And so that may be where we all came from. Perhaps. We don't know. <laughs> but it sort of fits some of the clues for why all life on Earth essentially does this crazy kind of process to make its ATP. So then ATP is used by the cell to do what? So ATP is essentially used by the cell to perform all of the other cellular functions that require a source of work or a source of energy. ATP is broken apart back into ADP and P, 
and that allows certain functions to move forward in the cell but not backwards. So when you're in the, in the microscopic, in the nano realm, you're constantly being bombarded on all sides by all these water molecules. And it's like, if there was a function in the cell to do something useful, like move in a certain direction, but not another, you need a process that is essentially irreversible to drive that. And the hydrolysis of ATP, meaning the breakdown of ATP is essentially what the cell uses to do that, to donate that energy in some manner of speaking. So we've been talking a lot about the nanoscale, the microscale, but you're an astrobiologist and you look at space and things on the order of light years. How do both of these things coexist in your brain without (laughs) you exploding? Yeah, well... I, I get the same sort of sense of wonder looking through a telescope as I do looking through a microscope. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel the natural world is so wondrous in both directions of scale. To the, to, to the macroscopic that we can barely comprehend because space is vast and full of grand explosions and giant planets. And also the inner workings of cells are extraordinarily complex and mind-boggling in their own right. The fact that we need to think about electrons. What are electrons even? You know, it's shuffling around. Probably there, there are lots of quantum effects in biology that we have yet to uncover their roles in how we operate. And so they coexist in my brain in, in the sense that they both shock me every single day that I go to work and think about them. Do you, you know, thinking about these nanoscale things, thinking about electrons, and also thinking about planets, you kind of do both of these things all day. Does that affect the way you, you know, so to speak, come back down to Earth and think about, like, what you're going to have for dinner and, you know, how to deal with a problem with a friend or something like that? Like, how, where do you (laughs) fit in all of this? Oh, wow. Um... Dinner is easy. <laughs> Friends, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> but but when, yeah, when I sit down to dinner, I think, okay, time to ingest my daily reductants, my daily source of electrons, right? Because now I know what I'm doing with the food that I eat. Um, in terms of friends, I really, I, I think I see and try to appreciate now, like, the, the glorious wonder in each of us that it took life roughly 4 billion years, okay, we don't know when life started, but on the order of 4 billion years, it took that first cell or that first RNA molecule or that first thing that was transducing electrical energy into into protons or whatever you think was at the emergence of life, all of this time to reach you and me. And prior to that, it took the formation of the solar system and the Big Bang to make all of the mass and the energy in the universe and then all of the different cycles of stars to create the heavy elements that we all rely on. Um, that's another mind-blowing thing about life is that, like, you know, everybody's like, we're carbon-based life forms. And then if you think about it a little harder, maybe your biology teacher said that we were carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen. And if they were really fancy, they would have said phosphorus and sulfur as well. <laughs> but we actually need something like 50, 60 elements in our bodies 
and um, most of the electron transfer is done by metals, transition metals, because those are the things that are really good at donating and accepting electrons. So the iron in our blood and um, even very trace things like molybdenum. Who knew, right? But molybdenum is, uh, is element number 42. So it's like the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything, right? So, <laughs> uh, and it's really crucial in a lot of biological processes. And we wouldn't be here without molybdenum. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, where was I going with all of this? That when I look at you, I see Lori Da Jose, but I also see this amazing conglomeration of complex processes that have brought you together, not just right now, but through all of time yeah. and the molybdenum inside of you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you, I don't know whether this is a chicken or the egg thing, but I feel like you being an astrobiologist has made you a more compassionate and empathetic person, but also you being a compassionate and empathetic person made you an astrobiologist. In my view, <laughs> just having known you for so many years. Aww. So maybe there's something that everybody can gain through astrobiology. Yeah, I think yeah, that, that, that kind of perspective on, on life, yeah. really. So, of course, to be a scientist, a successful scientist, it's a good idea to have interests outside of science and to have a life outside of lab. So, for you, what... My thesis advisor would <laughs> disagree, but... <laughs> um, infamous. Um, but, so what has helped you be a better scientist that isn't... You know, where do you look for inspiration to doing science that isn't, like, in textbooks or lectures or papers? Well, this is maybe not what you were looking for, mm. um, because it is still related to science. But I really admire science journalists, because I feel like science journalists are so flexible in terms of incorporating all of this high-level knowledge, and then translating that into something that is digestible by the grander audience. And so when I look at the work of science journalists, I feel inspired because on a certain level, I kind of want to be able to do that too. It doesn't matter to me if I make the greatest discovery if I can't share that with the world. But beyond um, journalism... What do I want to say? What do I want to say? I don't know. know. Soccer? Soccer? (laughs) Theater? Theater. Theater? Actually, yeah, theater is good. I like that one. Sure. Um, So it's almost in the same vein as science journalism. You're trying to create a product that can be enjoyed by somebody that, you know, they won't want to, like, get up in the middle of reading or watching and just do something else Uh, so it needs to be entertaining on a certain level but hopefully it also has a quality that somebody's life is a little bit changed whether their knowledge has been increased or it got them to think differently about something or got them to feel something and uh, one thing that I really found out about myself by doing theater here at Caltech which I had never done any theater before Although I've always had, uh, you know, kind of a passion for, like, public speaking and things like that, but I've never actually been a part of a theatrical production, was realizing how much fulfillment I gained on a very personal, like, soulful level by making other people laugh and smile. And um, if there's some way that I can do that with my science as well, 
I think you do. <laughs> I'm biased, but I think you do. So, why did you decide to start a podcast? Oh. I'm sure your listeners, I don't, maybe they know the answer to that. Maybe they don't know. They, they know the scientific reason why, mm -hmm. because my first few episodes were about this. So, um... I started the podcast because I was inspired by this new Star Trek series that came out a few years ago, and there was this brilliant depiction of protoplanetary disks, and I was like, I want to talk about that, uh, because I know people who study protoplanetary disks, and so we had a couple of episodes about this, and obviously the whole podcast's idea is to use Star Trek as a gateway into real science, but beyond the scientific motivation of a podcast, uh, I... Do you know Heidi Klumpa? Yeah. Okay, great. So so she and I met through theater things. She has always told me that she wants to start her own science podcast. Oh, for the listeners, <laughs> start this over. Okay, so Heidi, Heidi is a graduate student here at Caltech, right. and she's in chemical engineering, uh, but she also does biology type research. Um, she's been super passionate about starting a science podcast, but has never really felt the activation energy to do it. And then she decided to take my astrobiology class. So she was, you know, kind enough. I, I, I felt like she was just there to support me. I don't know if she <laughs> learned anything from me about astrobiology because she's obviously very bright herself and probably knew most of the concepts already. But when I saw that Heidi was in my class and I could, like, you know, assign her activities and homework to do, one day I decided... What if I made this homework assignment to make a science podcast? So that was inspired by Heidi, and I gave this entire assignment to the class. And I said, um, okay, we were studying the origin of life, so why don't you all pair up and have a debate in front of a microphone oh, like about different theories for the origin of life. And one of you role plays somebody who's a theorist or an experimentalist in one camp of the origin of life, and the other person role plays something else. And then you sort of attack each other and defend your ideas. And I felt like this was such a better assignment to do than the alternative, which was just write a paper about the origin of life. Because in order to sit down and have an intellectual conversation with somebody, you need to have internalized all of the information about the theory that you were defending and the theory that you were contending with. Rather than when you write a paper, you know... I'm sure you've all done this at some point in your life. You're sitting there typing on your computer, and then you look over to Wikipedia or a textbook, and then you just write something that is, you know, the same information but said in your own way so that you're not plagiarizing. But that's maybe not the best way to actually internalize and digest knowledge. And so I thought a podcast would be a perfect idea. And Heidi, of course, had a brilliant podcast. But all of my students did too. And I thought to myself, wow, if... My students, who are Caltech students, very busy, have lots of things going on, could all turn around a great science podcast in, with one week's notice. Maybe I could do a weekly podcast about something that I will never be tired of talking about, which is science and Star Trek. Yeah. So that's how I started the podcast, essentially. That's awesome. Yeah. I can't believe you find time to do this. <laughs> well, I have to make time. You know, sure. I lose many Saturday mornings to, to editing podcasts, yeah. but um, <laughs> it's it's worth it to me. Uh, yeah. Cool.
I truly feel that the universe expands in wonder every time I talk about it with Lori Jose, and I hope that some part of this conversation made you feel that way too. Lori's work can be found in breaking news articles on caltech.edu, and she also writes for the Caltech Magazine and Tecker, the Caltech Alumni Association's magazine. Next time on Strange New Worlds, what happens in Vegas sometimes escapes. Content from the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. You don't want to miss it. Until then, see you out there. How do you think being a science journalist for so long now, it's been like four years, right? Yeah, so like, it's been four years this, next week. The same amount of time that you spent as an undergrad at Caltech, you've now been do- <laughs> doing <laughs> Don't remind me. science journalism. Yeah. So essentially you've done another degree, but in sure. science journalism sure. at Caltech. Yeah. That's, well, first of all, it's just mind boggling on a personal level to like yeah. realize that, right? Yeah, um, it's been forever. But how, how does that feel because like you've achieved your dream. Yeah. Not to say that you don't have other dreams or that you want to continue to aspire mm-hmm. to, you know, greater heights, but but that you've been Yeah, it does feel a little bit like, you know, put me in a little bit of crisis because I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, my job title has been science writer for like 3 or 4 years now and like I want to not ever take that for granted. Yeah. But you're right in that I do feel like I achieved something that was my goal to do. And of course, there's always room for growth. And I don't want to think that like, oh, I've made it, even though in a way I have. Like (laughs) seeing my story on the cover of the magazine in the winter, sorry, spring issue this year was just like the weirdest thing and coolest thing ever because I remember starting to read this magazine, you know, what? Back when it was called ENS, right? Yeah, in 2011. (laughs) And like being able to be like, yeah, and now I'm on, I mean, not I'm on the cover, but like my story is on the cover. That's kind of a, it's a wild feeling that I want to stop and kind of bottle up and appreciate and savor and say, you know, I did this even though like Caltech was really hard for me and like getting this job was nothing certain and so it just kind of like appreciating that I have in a sense made it while also understanding that there's so much more left to do and places to go and things to do as part of this career at least and of the infinite other career possibilities that I could take. <laughs> it's it's a cool it's cool.